Hey everyone, it's Amber Love, and you are listening to the Vodka O'Clock podcast from AmberUnmasked.com. And uh, once again, wanted to remind everybody for uh, about the cardiac arrest launch. I'm so excited that my book is finally out, and so grateful for those of you that have supported it and you know shared the tweets and bought the you know your own copies. So uh, cardiac arrest, it's um, you can easily find it on, on Amazon, but you should be able to order it from major bookstores. Um, certainly, if you can't, let me know, and I will do what I can to get you a copy. You can always catch the latest news and stuff if you're a Patreon backer, and that would be easy. Just go to patreon.com slash amberunmasked. You can sponsor the show, the site, and my work. And if you're already a backer, please make sure that you've adjusted your pledge for the new per-month setup. So joining me today on Vodka O'Clock is my creative guest. We're going to talk about artsy-fartsy stuff and living creative lives and things that we do to get through um, and living here uh, in, you know, in a country that's, you know, maybe not supportive of creative types. <laughs> so Joy Tawny is here. Don't forget, hey. we're an explicit website. So, uh, hey, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> hey. Well, fuck shit, damn, you know. <laughs> you go, right out of the way. <laughs> yeah, now, now that we've gotten past that, you know. <laughs> We're going to be talking about fucking comics. Yeah, no, and I bar- fucking love body comics. paint. Yeah. <laughs> body paint. Yeah, body paint's awesome. Yeah, so I discovered that body paint and I don't get along. But then again, I, it wasn't airbrush. It was, um, like, painted on latex stuff. What, uh, what brand did you use? Uh, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea. I went to a guy who was doing, he had a, a booth at Exotica one year. And it was um, cool because even though it was an adult show filled with porn stars, they still have nipple laws, which is, you know, New Jersey. Yeah. So even though I was there to take off my shirt and have them painted, uh, we still had to like, as soon as my shirt came off, like quickly paint the nipples because then it counts as being covered. So you didn't have to use the pasties? No, as long as it was covered with the paint. Okay. That was enough. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so that's my experience with body paint, my one and only time. Okay, so um, what's your background in art? I imagine you've been probably doing arty things your whole life. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was born into a band to a couple of hippies. Uh, I went to Savannah College of Art and Design and majored in sequential art. Um, you know, I've done comic art. I've done mural painting. I've done body art. Um, I am just taking the work that comes and having a really good time with it. So that's, I'm also a professional musician. Um, <laughs> you know, I blog. And it goes on and on. Yeah, ex- exactly. Like, just whatever whatever gets me by for that month. Like, I have no other marketable skills except for the literary, visual, and performing arts. That's it. That's me. If the apocalypse comes tomorrow, like, we're not going to be, like, making pamphlets on how to start a fire or something. So, like, I just, I'll have to hope that they pay me to do, like, cave paintings. You know, that's so funny. I thought about, um, like cave paintings and how that's basically the first comic book yeah yeah <laughs> that, that classic sequential art you know telling that story it's how to hunt how to kill the big thing yeah and the bayou tapestry too that wonderful uh french tapestry that is like hundreds of feet long and with the dirty jokes hidden in it like that's you know more more sequential art coming out of those cave paintings 
Yeah, and you used to be able to have, you know, erotic art, and it was just considered normal. Yeah, and broadsheets. <laughs> so it's interesting that a lot of comic people have this crossover with music. And I think, you know, maybe to certain fans who aren't aware, they kind of get surprised when they find out that, you know, oh, so-and-so from this band, you know, is putting out a comic, and they think that they're just... Uh, like in the case of Kiss, they think that you know it's they're rubber stamping it. Like I don't really think they're involved with any of that process because they will you know sell their licensing to anybody. Um, but I do think that they had at least an interest in the comic book industry. Yeah. At least at least a couple of them. And you've got Maybe like not. books like Armory Wars and Umbrella Academy and um, right. some of those others where it's just. I, that's interesting because I don't know what it is. Like a lot of comics people are musicians. We maybe just need multiple outlets because it's like music's so demanding. Comics are so demanding. Like what do you do when, when one niche of the creative format sucks up your life? Like you do switch to another and just like have some fun, like playing around where it's like you're way too skillful and your eye or ears too trained, like <laughs> to, you know. Yeah, I found that, um, you know, it's just been a really long process for me anyway, just getting to know myself and the things that I like to do and jobs that I've had and, you know, what on earth I should possibly be doing with my life. And it was a, it was a discovery for me to say, okay, every couple of hours I like to stop and switch gears and do something else. And every couple years I need a big change. And you know, and these are things that when I was in high school were frowned upon. You needed to um, buckle down. You had to somehow be focused on a thousand different things because you needed to have the word multitasking on your resume. <laughs> and that if you changed what you did often, that it was considered terrible. What are some of the and ways that you switch gears? Uh, well, I like to switch gears from, you know, like I was writing comics now, you know, then I focused on my on novels because it's just it's a whole different process. There's a lot less people involved. Um, and, you know, I switched from my podcasting. I used to do video podcasting and now I hardly ever do videos. It's um, I used to do videos every single week. And now it's, you know, a longer show, but an audio format. So just things like that, you, you know. Oh yeah, you uh, you did some game reviews, didn't you? Like, that was... uh, I did I did my comic reviews oh. on YouTube originally. Cool. Yeah. Um. So that's the kind of stuff that, you know, like to me makes sense. I haven't I haven't done any cooking in a like forever <laughs> long time. Like tomorrow I have to bake a cake. It's gonna be like an interesting thing because I haven't I haven't cooked in a really long time. Oh. I, I used to I used to you know do a lot of cooking and it wasn't really creative I guess but I guess you could say I mean cooking is definitely a creative thing if you know what you're doing <laughs> I was the type that I'm like okay I don't have this ingredient so I'm just gonna use something else and hope it works because <laughs> I'd rather just experiment than run out to the store sure. <laughs> so um you're you know this wonderful creative background that you have uh, I didn't come from a creative family so I don't know what that's like. Well, uh, it doesn't give you much to relate to your peers with. Like we were on almost constant tour until I started kindergarten. So it's like everyone else I met had these like nine to five families where like the values were very different. So that made me like the weirdo outcast K through 12. Super fun. I mean, I guess a lot of like the successful creative people that like we meet 
were that way. They were the weird kid in their class, but it was like, it, it gave me um, a lot of cultural exposure to some amazing stuff. The Philadelphia art scene, the Poconos art scene, the music scene in both of those, um, just amazing people, these old hippies, like still doing what they were doing in the sixties. Um, but it limited me in a lot of other day, other ways. Cause I didn't have, um, that commonality of experience that like most of the other people I, most of the kids, at least I knew had. Yeah. I'm, you know, I can't say that I ever thought to invite either anybody, actually anybody in my family to career day. I only remember career day once. I think we were in ninth grade, but I remember, you know, my one friend had her dad come in. He was a corrections officer and he's, the only person I think, no, I remember one other person who was a software engineer. And that was to me the coolest thing because at the time I had like never seen a computer. So I, you know, it was like, oh my God, this guy brought this computer in and it had this, um, you know, Monopoly on it, uh-huh. this Monopoly game and how he, back when the old wonderful dot matrix printers, you know, you got to peel off all those holes. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> and like like oh man and it was like so much fun to peel the holes <laughs> off of the paper <laughs> so it's like those are literally the only two things I can remember from career day yeah actually uh my family introduced themselves to like my my school peers um when we were doing like square dancing in gym and so where normally they'd have that over like a cd player they hired a live folk square dancing band and guess whose family was the family band it was juggernaut string band my parents band so it's like wow hey joy surprise like and it's like i can never take this back i am now you know this is i <laughs> i love though i love that you mentioned that you did square dancing in gym because we did that here <laughs> and um it was what the heck it was uh there was something on tv and for some reason i i had said to, there was square dancing going on and it I had said to my boy, I was like, don't you learn that? Because he came from, like, the city area, like, by New York. And I guess they had never taught square dancing out in Hoboken or whatever the <laughs> hell it was. Oh, wow. I was like, yeah, I thought that they did that everywhere, too. Yeah, I'm like, what do you mean you don't know this? You didn't do the do do I think it makes a lot of people hate square dancing, though. I mean, you know, it's, it's got the cultural stigma anyway, but then, you know, you're forced to do it in, like, fifth grade when you're super awkward and don't want to touch anybody. I was going to say, you were forced to touch boys, and it was so gross. Like, I don't want to touch you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, being scarred. In comes my dad with the banjo and my mom with the fiddle, and it's, like, extra, you know, extra trauma right there. It was – actually, it was great, but – you know, everything's embarrassing when you're when you're that age. Everything your parents do. So did they encourage you then to go to art school or were they like like these jobs don't pay, go please to law school or something? <laughs> well, um, if they'd said that the jobs don't pay and go to law school, they would be hypocrites. Uh but uh they were they were really encouraging. Like the you know, I I play music a lot because of my natural involvement with my family and stuff. But um, I always had this like connection to art that they saw in me when I was very young. And they were always super encouraging of it as long as I was realistic about my expectations. And I had a front row seat to this like freelance life. Um, So I kind of knew the struggles that I would be going through if I chose this lifestyle. And they were very clear with me. You know, it's not going to be easy. There's um, the stereotype of like 
the overnight sensation exists because it's so goddamn rare. Like, um, so I, they were very, very supportive. Um, but also were like very, you know, be, be prepared for what you're getting yourself into. Cause you have to kind of, ah, I, I wish it wasn't true that you could, you could do it for without having, I don't know, how do I say this? Like, <laughs> you know, just that you, it shouldn't, it should be a, a well-paying enough thing where it's not just a labor of love to go into the arts. Uh, sure. We shouldn't yeah. just be doing it because, you know, we've thrown all of our eggs into this basket. We shouldn't be doing it because we can't imagine ourselves doing anything else. I wish the pay was better for the vast majority of people in the arts because, you know, then it maybe wouldn't have to be like this where only the most passionate and, you know, hardworking people can even break in. They even say that in comics that, um, you know, that it takes like 10 to 15 years to so-called break in, which is sad. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's it's unless you know people, unless you know the right people or if you can fund your way, you know, like um, I don't know how, how Terry Moore, you know, ever – published you know his own work and became such a, a superstar in comics but you know he's like this pinnacle of not being corporate yeah absolutely <laughs> abstract studios is incredible and the the, the width of dis- distribution that they've gotten and just it's it's wonderful to see the way he and robin work together um, they actually their uh creative and business person pairing reminds me of like uh, Dolly and Gala or uh, Frank Frazetta and Ellie Frazetta, where it's like you've you've got the primarily creative partner and you've got the primarily business partner. And it's just together they they create something on a level that they couldn't have done individually. It's like synergy. Right. And it, it's one of those things where a lot of those other people, the business people don't get any of the props, you know, they don't get their, their names in the articles and stuff like that. And I just watched a documentary on HR Giger, which I always mispronounced because I had never heard it said before. Um, but it was, it was hard to, to watch because it was all in subtitles, but uh, <laughs> I think he married all of his assistants. Oh my God. <laughs> at, at some point or another. But, um, all of his assistants were younger women that, um, were, you know, they were, they were there to not only assist him with, I guess, the art production, but, you know, handling contracts and touring and signings. And then it got to the point where, you know, health wise, they were literally being, you know, like personal assistants. And so you had your, your, more spousal duties and then your business duties to this creative person. Wow. Um, you know, and I, it's like, uh, like you said, a lot of uh, the, these great couples exist out there. Yeah. It's so inspiring. <laughs> so that's cool. But it sounds like your parents were both uh, the creative types. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and being folkies, you know, there was definitely like uh, in, in the folk music scene, th- there's definitely a stigma against like selling out or whatever. So um, Juggernaut String Band uh, is actually the most prominent it's ever been right now where it's like we have 
some a couple 20 year old 20 something year olds in the band who like know about social media and know how to use it and are actually like taking the reins on some of this business stuff where uh, we just put out an album called Power Folk, which is on iTunes uh, by Juggernaut String Band. Um, and it's it's like I think it's our best album ever. You know, there's actually you know, we've got a fan base that like comes to our concerts and we're trying to grow that. And like we have Music Monday on Facebook and like I tweet about Juggernaut String Band and stuff. It's like hearing the name of the band, though, reminds me of like one of my favorite holiday movies, which I usually despise. But there's a couple that I watch. Emma Otter's Jug Band Christmas. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Jim like, Henson loved the five string banjo. And that's that's what's yes. in our band, the five string banjo. <laughs> that's cool. So Yeah. So there's um. There's a big banjo resurgence. I think it's having a renaissance right now. It is. And I'm so glad to see that finally we're like pulling off some of that stigma because the banjo is such a great instrument. I mean, I'm biased because yeah. like banjo music runs through my blood, but like it's it's so much more versatile than people give it credit for. And um, hearing it like even in like pop music and stuff is like so exciting. You know, even just a little bit of banjo in the background. I just like I sit up and I'm like, oh, yes, yes, more. If you guys go back and listen to my show with my dear friend Thomas Boatwright, the uh, he plays the intro music for that that was done on the banjo back before his wrist got so severely injured from carpal tunnel. Um, he he did a couple of cool banjo songs um, like the so I think the one that we put up is a sea shanty piratey <laughs> kind of a thing. It's really awesome. Wow. Oh, you know what? You know what comic artist who plays banjo is Chris Schweitzer. I don't know him. Uh, uh, Krogan's Krogan, bleh, the Krogan Adventures. Uh, okay. Series by Oni. Oh, okay. He's he's a big yeah. folky. <laughs> I'm seeing it more and more and more, and there's um, and ukuleles too. Oh yeah. People are people are really loving the ukes. Yeah. Sarah Donner. I love when Sarah can come and um, help us with our fundraiser in New Jersey. And she tours around in the area too, like you know, like Princeton and Pennsylvania, and of course in New York and stuff. And she'll have different guitars, and I would just, you know, as an uneducated person, just call them all guitars, <laughs> but they're probably not. Um, but she definitely has like a little uke, and it's so adorable. And then she sings with her kittens, of course. Oh my gosh, I haven't I haven't seen her. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, she has a Patreon too, so um, she's a foster mom for kittens. So her music videos usually feature her playing and kittens. Wow. In them climbing on things, and she dressed them up like astronauts one time. <laughs> did this whole big elaborate kitten astro cats or something. <laughs> that's like that's really shrewd internet marketing. Like you're guaranteed a certain number of views just for that. Yeah, the adorableness is unbelievable, <laughs> off the charts. So with comics, did you um, did you ever learn the writing side of comics or just the focus on the art visuals of comics? Uh, I did learn some comics writing. Uh, we were trained for it at SCAD. Uh, I'm looking for an opportunity to apply this. Um, one of my goals is to work with enough people in the comic industry that when I start pitching um, my original books, there's going to be a lot of people who say, yeah, I've worked with Joy. She's consistent. She finishes what she says she's going to do. Uh, she is a safe bet to hire and she's going to bring her own audience to it. So, um, you know, I'm so much of what I'm doing right now is in the hopes that as my career continues, I can be a leader and employer and start bringing some of my ideas to the forefront more and, and writing more um, where 
a lot of the work I've been doing has been for other people and developing their ideas. Okay. Um, because I know, obvi uh, obviously, there are so many different cogs that go into making a single comic book. Um, I happen to be a person who likes to read graphic novels and trades just because it's um, even if I need to pause in the reading somewhere a couple of times, um, I just follow a story better if I can just keep going yeah. um, at my own pace. But, you know, when you're talking about the the penciling, a lot of people do their own inking now. So I don't want to say that there's no inking because I just hosted a panel on comic book inking. Um, but it's, I know that times are changing with uh, doing things digitally and uh, lettering. I can tell you that lettering is so underappreciated um, because when I see bad lettering, it drives me bonkers and I will bitch about it. Um, and coloring. I, I mean, it, it's a, it was a really cool thing. If you can, ever have the chance I know not everybody can get to a convention but these panels are so helpful if they especially if they have the really good visuals like um, Sean Martinborough brought his own slides that we put up so it just kept running and it would show the like the you know fine lines that he did and then like these then he would go back over with like all the black shadows on stuff and it was so cool because it's a completely different picture yeah so the colors, you know, I, I've seen bad coloring where everything looks like plastic. And then you have seen coloring where I'm like, oh, my God, I want to jump into that page. <laughs> yeah, um, it, I, I definitely agree that, like, there's um, there's a lot of underappreciated arts to comics, especially when it's like this subtle psychological stuff where it's like you don't even know that it's being fed into your brain that, well, here's the depth, here's the texture, here's where it's sitting in the picture plane you know, here's the actual physical weight and like stuff like inking, uh, the, the width of a line and the way the line curves and, um, whether it's like super smooth or kind of dry brushy, like the, the vast majority of the art audience doesn't think about how that's affecting what's going on in their brain. And it's like, it's, it's such a, you know, such a precise art, just like with coloring and with lettering where they're so subtle and you don't even realize what's being fed into you to create the scene that's actually playing out in your mind. It, it was definitely a triumph recently to um, to see the news that, you know, finally colors are going to be like listed on the covers of books, like for the first time ever. What freaking year is this that this has to right. be an issue now? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I was kind of surprised by that, too. Uh, a friend of mine, Paul Aller, on his book, I think it's... Uh, I think it's specifically on Past the Last Mountain. I don't know if it's on other books, like if he does something big like the Ninja Turtles. But he puts himself, as the writer, he puts himself last. Hmm. Um, just like for the cover. And I don't, I don't know what the inside credits look like. They're probably in a very specific order too. But it's, it's partially because it's one of those things where we're always doubting ourselves and saying, no, I didn't make this good thing. These other people made this thing good. And, <laughs> you know, and then there's the, um, you know, just trying to treat your peers like peers and just be like, okay, this wasn't my thing. This is our thing. Yeah. It, there's a um, lot of ego and then a lot of imposter syndrome in tons. <laughs> yeah, absolutely tons. Um, 
it was like a friend of mine got em- embarrassed because I, I listed her as the editor when I published uh, Cardiac Arrest. Like, but you did. And she's like, she's like, well, I guess. I mean, I was just, you know, being a friend. And I'm like, you went through and found my typos. And then you spent days teaching me about coding and formatting and stuff. I mean, you know, it's it was an investment of your hours yeah. <laughs> into my project. So that's awesome. Definitely. Yeah, I've, I've wondered a lot if that has something to do with once you get to that professional level, especially in um, in pieces of media and entertainment that are a really big group project, like on, you know, if you get into as a professional on television or a professional with comics or, you know, some of these other big group projects where you've already developed your critical mind and your critical eye, ear, whatever, so much that like all you can really see is the flaws in your own work anymore because you're so focused on what's better than you and what's above you and the heights that you have yet to climb. I, I don't know if you think that's a factor in why so many people in certain entertainment industries have this common imposter syndrome, but I've that's something I guess I've experienced in my own thing is like the more the the more I develop my eye, like the more just I can't enjoy a lot of stuff, including my own work for the freedom of it as much. <laughs> well, it, it's an interesting thing because we're, uh, you know, it's, you know, 2016 and we're going through another hashtag and news cycle of Oscars. So white, because there were like in the top major categories of the Oscars this year, there were again, like no people of color listed. Um, not even nominated. And like some of these categories have what, like 20 people in them. It's absurd. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, the, the awards, you know, we have, we have different kinds of awards in comics and music, of course. Um, novels have their own comics. I mean, there's making bestseller lists, you know, which is a big honor. And then there's actual awards like the Edgar Awards, the Agathas, and, um, you know, usually goes by genre and stuff. When you see these things and you're, you know, you're either mad about them or you're happy about them, it's kind of... Uh, I guess makes you makes it easy to then doubt yourself and and just say, well, geez, I'm never going to be nominated for this or I'm not nominated or I've been doing this thing for 30 years and I'm still not nominated for anything. Um, Yeah. You know, it just kind of, I guess, is easy to get to you that yay for recognition and yay for making awards. But on the other hand, you know, a lot of them, like the Hugos, were rigged. Yeah. You know, like the Hugos were a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's why I like to do, I, I changed um, during the, the Vodka O'Clock, you know, life cycle. I've changed from calling things best of to just being like my things I things I liked or my favorite things of the year. Mm. And staying like, instead of like quantifying something as, oh, this is the best comic book of the year because it's. You know, it might, it might not be. Somebody else might look at it and laugh. Like, you know, like there's a lot of comic books I don't like sure. and other and get their bestsellers. So, <laughs> um, you know, uh, so it's just one of those things where I, we, we do get really hung up on uh, wanting the external validation and saying, hey, you don't suck. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, it's, it can be a really good thing about the Internet. It can be a really bad thing about the Internet. You know, absolutely. And as women in the arts, the the more notoriety we gain online, the more likely we are to attract some weirdo with a grudge. Like, awesome. Exactly. You know, this yeah, is just absolutely. a job hazard now. OK. <laughs> yeah. 
yeah, uh, you know, it's not even just gaming, but it's everywhere. Yeah. Um, and that's just weird. Like, I can't imagine, you know, 30 years ago or 20 years ago, somebody threatening Barbara Streisand. <laughs> uh, you had mentioned before that you were, um, you did this big giant mural and uh, and I've seen some of them in Philadelphia. They're, they're really amazing. Murals to me are so Im- impressive. A lot of them get to be very political, but others are just meant to reflect whatever the culture is. Um, so when it comes to a commission, whether or not it's a mural, but just that's what made me think of this. When it comes to a commission, have you ever been hindered from expressing your vision because of whoever was hiring you? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I walk into most of my jobs for someone else kind of expecting that, like, you know, that ultimately it's, it's their vision that matters and I'm trying to make it the best version of that as possible. But it's like, if, if I'm not the leader and the employer in this, um, you know, to, to be a professional in a group project, I have to, respect what they're asking of me and um so I mean (laughs) well how do you handle it you know if uh, you know you sketch something out or you draft something out and um you know it's sort of like going through the rejection process with writing um yeah uh, I think I understand a little better maybe what you were asking um for instance I recently was asked to um do a mural of a, of a tree. So I sketched this beautiful tree. I looked at um, a lot of Mary Blair concept artwork and um, a lot of that like early Disney concept artwork and looked at how they rendered their trees and did this beautiful willow that I'm very proud of. And they look at it and they're like, this is great, but we need it to be different. And I'm like, you know, joking in like a benign way with my other professional artist friends. It's like, oh, well, they don't know quality when they see it or whatever, even though you know, the next one will be great and I'll be proud of that too. But it's like, you, you do get like a bit attached to what gets rejected. Um. <laughs> Definitely. It sounds like, um, I guess because you had encouraging parents that you probably learned that stuff very young. <laughs> Whereas if somebody really didn't understand the process of working as a team or working for someone, someone else, you know, whether it's in a corporation or if you were doing freelance clients, it's like, you are just going to have to know that you will meet deadlines and you will turn this in and they will say, no, this isn't right. And we need it by the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And um, I have exposure to those kinds of people who like, didn't know how to manage the people under them. And then those people who would flake out on being managed, like um, I, I was having that lesson driven into my brain, like very early, (laughs) like this is not how you survive in the arts and entertainment. This is not how you employ people. This is not how you act as a freelance employee. What style do you put yourself in? Um, you know, I mean, you reference Disney, and that's they have a really distinct history as to their look and their, you know, feel. Um, and Frazetta is, you know, in the fantasy category. So where does Joy fall? Well, um, Joy actually has a lot of different styles. Um, if you look at my art uh, on my various blogs, uh, for instance, Kinetic Novels on Tumblr, uh, Joy Tawny uh, on Twitter, etc. I'm posting art all over the place. 
I'm on Instagram. Um, you'll see that my style is actually like really flexible and I do highly rendered realistic pieces as well as very stylized designy art as well. Uh, I'm really trying to create a wide range of skills so that I have, I'm not just employable in all these different forms of art and music, but I also bring that synergy that's unique to me where it's like as an artist, if I draw an instrument because I'm also a musician, I'm going to draw it so that you can pick that instrument up and play it where other people would just like draw a blob with a neck on it or something. Um, whereas someone who does both digital art and watercolor, I'm bringing watercolor techniques into digital art and digital techniques into watercolor. Um, as a muralist and body painter, I'm using, you know, I'm using body painting techniques to get around weird edges of wall uh, in muraling and then using mural techniques to cover the body uh, completely in a short amount of time. Um, I, let's see, um, you'll see a wide variety of uh, ethnicities in my art, which I think is something that's a bit characteristic of me. Um, the different places I've lived have always been pretty diverse. So a diverse world in my art is just more natural to me. Um, line quality really matters to me. I have some crisp, beautiful lines in my inking and my painting and my digital art. Um, focus on inner life, actually. Like the subject of my art is often not necessarily what you can see in the art, but what's in the subject's head. Um, shifting colors within shadows is also something that I think has become very characteristic of both my painting and uh, my work as a comic colorist. Um, I recently uh, digitally painted 10 prints that were first illustrated in graphite by Rags Morales. Um, and he, you know, he'll be selling them at uh, some of the cons he's at. He'll have them on Etsy sometimes. Um, but, uh, you know, they're out there. Um, and if you look at those, in a lot of them, there will be shifting colors that it's, uh, you know, blue tones in the skin and um, green tones in the shadows and stuff. And it's like the kind of thing you start getting if you like look at a leaf in shade for like a few minutes and like you start seeing all this like interesting stuff starting to happen to it just because of the uh, the optics. Well, I think with skin, it's definitely just like, um, you know, with animals and fur and stuff like that. Um, there are all these colors that you don't normally think of if you're not a trained artist. Um, you know, like talking about greens and purples in the skin. Um, I was told that that's one of the reasons that uh, TV production stopped using blue screen and switched to green screen was because more people have blue tone in their skin. So it was affecting um, the editing process. Huh. Um, whether or not that's true, I don't know. <laughs> but I've, I mean, I've worked with people who do, uh, you know, oils and watercolors and pastels when I model. So it's been really interesting to see people, especially with the pastels, really experiment and um, they they take things to a different level than painters. Like painters are usually trying to go for something really realistic, the ones that, I, that I've worked for anyway. Um, and even if they're doing things that are more impressionistic, they still um, – are trying to make it match whatever my skin is. But then when I've seen people with pastels, it's interesting when they start breaking out the purple and the green colors. 
I'm like, what are you seeing? Like, am I black and blue? Like, what's going on? Um, but it's just really cool that they, their eyes are trained in a way that's just different. Yeah. Like, I, I don't see that. <laughs> well, uh, by your definition, I'd say uh, something that's characteristic of my style is that I work more like the way you're describing the pastel artists, despite being a watercolor artist and digital painter and acrylic painter. Um, is I, I'm definitely, um, I've trained my eye to see those stranger colors, and I really like to bring that out, and I think it's something that um, makes my work uh, more unique. And if, like, you look at my watercolor portraiture, there's just, you, if you pick apart those colors, it's like colors that you would not be associating with um, the skin tones that I'm using. But then you pull back, and it's totally impressionistic, like you were saying. So besides the... Uh... Uh, little collaboration that you, you've had with Rags Morales, and that's uh, a comic book artist, if people don't know who that is. Um, what other projects can you talk about? <laughs> well, um, you know, your, your phrasing that way makes me have to say that there are some projects I can't talk about that I'm very excited about uh, in coming out in 2016. So keep an ear out for my name. But the ones that I can talk about um, would include Anne Elizabeth's Zombie Power 3, which is out on Amazon.com. Um, uh, that was a really fun book, and I'll have more issues coming out with her in the future. Um, and Anne's been great to work with. Uh, I also worked as a background inker, assistant inker, and digital post-productionist for Rick Bryant on uh, several issues of Sonic Boom. So um, I was really sick of go-karts by the end of that. <laughs> I was wondering if that, if that was what I was thinking of. And it's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A Sonic the Hedgehog comic um, put out by Archie Comics. Uh, got to meet like Vincent Lavallo and all these awesome, you know, Archie people. It was really a pleasure to, to work with Rick and them. You know, a little starstruck because it's like I um, I always, before I actually started getting jobs in comics, I always kind of pigeonholed myself into the indie comics thing. So it was like, <gasps> you know, my, my line is in an Archie comic. Like, I just, I just never imagined that, but it's like, you know, shaking the hand that shook the world or something. Right. Absolutely. I mean, they've been around forever. Yeah. That's how it feels. So it feels to me. Yeah. I would, I can't imagine that. That must feel great. <laughs> so with the body painting, is that force like, um, specific, shows like I've been to a tattoo show but I know that there are shows that are um specifically like body painting shows where you know there's sort of like a competition and people get up on runways and are judged and stuff so what is what do you do in that world well I really would like to um attend some body painting cons and maybe compete in that manner but um since discovering body painting I've mostly been doing it with an eye for doing a photo shoot um, I have a body painting project coming up where I'll be painting, um, creepy conjoined twins for a horror themed body shoot with the photographer Mimi Dawn, as well as the, um, makeup artist and body artist Razor D Rockefeller. Uh, so I'm pretty excited about that. That's in late February that we're doing that. Um, something I would actually really love to do, and this is kind of a pipe dream right now, cause I'm not at the point where I can implement it, but, um, I'm really interested in all the ways that you can integrate uh, our emerging technology with body painting. And I would like to have an online store with all of my work, all the stuff that I've ever touched that's available for sale in it. And one of those things would be a collection of about six 
uh, 3D printed figurines um, that were body paintings of mine where you'd scan the model and do a full color 3D print so you can actually have the body painting crystallized in time and have it, you know, be an art piece and be a collectible thing. Because body painting is so ephemeral. You know, you only have so many hours before you and the model are going to get tired. So you really have to um, plan your body painting around that and be practical about what you're going to do and what effects you really genuinely have time before they have to, like, go eat lunch or something. Um, and then, of course, it only exists as as long as they don't wash it off. So there's there's just so many ways that I would like to see it um brought more up to date. And I think uh, part of that has to do with, you know, the public's perception of body painting. I don't think people are as exposed to body painting as maybe I wish they were, um, because I think if more people were just aware of it and aware of the incredible applications of body painting, there would be a lot more cons, there would be a lot more competitions, and there would be a lot more opportunities for professional body painters. Right. I mean, there's... um... Like I, I'm involved in cosplay, so I see a lot of cosplayers that go through a body painting process. My friend Kate, who just had a birthday, happy birthday, Kate. Birthday, um, Kate. She, she loves to experiment with body paint, in, um, but she, I, she hasn't gotten to that. Uh, I don't think she's gotten to that artistic point where it's been really complicated. It's like, okay, this character has green skin. I need to paint myself green and make sure my lips are bright orange and she's great with eyeshadow. Like that's something I'm really, really like jealous of those challenges. Um, but that's, uh, you know, I don't know if she has to do all of that herself or, or what that process is. So I've seen it from the cosplay perspective, but then there's big shows like in Los Angeles with the um, eye mats, which is the like makeup arts show. Um, you know, things that you see from runway and fashion to special effects. Like it's a big range of makeup arts there. And it just seems like really, uh, like it seems expensive. Like it just seems like a really expensive industry <laughs> to even try to get into no less than um, like if somebody was interested just as a hobby, that sounds impossible. The flies are definitely a bit expensive, but it's like, then like you look at the price of like oil paints or watercolors. And it's, I think I can get more of like a body painting colored cake that would be applied with a kabuki brush, like more per ounce. I'll, I can get for the same price as like a tiny tube of watercolors. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, is that something that you learned formally or did you just teach yourself? Well, did they teach? They, I imagine they didn't teach. I don't know. Maybe they did teach body painting at art school because I've never seen as it. As far as I know, they did not have any classes or majors in body painting. Um, I think it's an interesting idea. <laughs> it is. It is. I think uh, one of the closest comparable forms of art to body painting is tattoo art because at least you're working with the skin there. You're working with the human form and you're designing it for a similar thing with a similar um, time constraints in mind because once again, they can only be in that tattoo chair for so long. You can only be tattooing them for so long before you have to take a break and let them heal. Um, mural painting, though, I found was really analogous to body painting in a lot of ways. And I have had to work in some like strange angles or paint some strange corners and do something that was cohesive and read well from a distance, even though, you know, you're you're contorting yourself in all these like crazy positions just to like reach it and make it look passable. 
But I imagine the what the big, huge difference there is that you're not dealing with a live person who's consenting to, you know, have their space invaded. By, you know, you know, the, the, the building might be different on, um, you know, maybe on a, a political perspective that it's like, oh, the whole town is going to see this thing and it's going to be, you know, visible from all the, these houses. Or yeah, but I didn't have to ask the building if it needed to take a didn't break. Have to ask yeah. The <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I can tell you that there, there are certain modeling experiences that I've had that were so physically demanding that I w- would just couldn't wait for Vicodin or crying at the end. Yeah, I, um, I felt fortunate that when I was introduced to body painting, um, the comfort of the model was stressed because uh, that's not always the case, you know, in, in a lot of arts, not just in body painting, but it's um, when you're so focused on what you're going to create, it can be a bit easy to forget that this is a collaborative process. You're working with someone else here and they need to be comfortable for you to produce the best kind of art that you can produce. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, and different studios are running it in different ways. But um, there's been times when I've just been like, no, I can't, I, I, I can't help you with that particular pose or that thing or like, you know, it, it really comes across whether it's a painter or a photographer, when it's like you can tell that I'm not comfortable with something, like just the expression is there. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I, I think I think body painting is like really fascinating. Like you said, gosh, it's you know, you have to you have to watch it wash away. Yeah. Well, that's that's why someday my online store is going to have a six figurine set that you can buy and you can have these beautiful, you know, these beautiful art pieces that you can put on your bookshelf or something and, and have these body paintings forever. And then, you know, in, in a thousand years, archaeologists will find them and be like, well, these were clearly used for religious purposes. So. Of course. Yeah, of course. <laughs> um, so how do you manage your time with all of these different types of projects? Do you have like a really awesome uh, like app on your phone that's got a fancy calendar that, I don't know, hits you over the head and it's time to move on? <laughs> I actually prefer uh, long handwriting. So I have an actual calendar and I have an actual okay. journal and I'm the queen of to-do lists. Um, and my calendar has something written on it just about every day. Um, I've found actually that like exercise and meditation has helped me manage the rest of my day. Cause it's like, if I have to be in the moment to be jogging three miles or be in the moment to try clearing my mind to meditate for, you know, 15 minutes, um, it stretches my sense of time. And I actually feel like I have more time. Um, so if I get even a little off track during the rest of the day, it's only for a few minutes versus say half an hour or three hours or something. Um, I definitely, you know, prioritize, but I also try to like treat myself like a human, like where it's not the end of the world if I don't get to all 11 bullet points on my to-do list or something like and have things that can be bumped over to the next day or something. Um, Cause I've, I've seen a lot of people work themselves sick and I have a lot of professional arts friends who have to work themselves sick just out of necessity, just because of the deadline, just because it's the only way they're going to survive is they have to knowingly uh, take that health risk. And um, with, with my own health history, it's really important that I do not do that because um, that could really make me crash and burn. And I'm proud to say actually that I have not pulled an all nighter in years and um, all of my, uh, you know, all of my employers can corroborate that I still get my shit done on time. 
Okay. I didn't, you know, is it okay for you to explain what your, your history was and that why like the, the joy now is really different and active and getting shit done? Sure, yeah. Um, <laughs> I have reflex sympathetic dystrophy. It's also known as complex regional pain syndrome. Um, it's basically my nervous system has been damaged through injury, illness, and stress. And this causes it to report pain where there is none, similar to fibromyalgia. If I'm injured, it takes longer to heal and I'm in more pain for longer. Um, so all of this means that for a long time, I was really walking a tightrope and afraid of any little thing that might happen. For 12 years of my life, from when I was 14 to 26, um, I was disabled pretty in, in a pretty limiting way, my mobility was uh, limited. I was in bed or on the couch for most of the day, just all of my resources taken with having to deal with this intense pain. It was very draining. Um, so there, it was it just really uh, took away a lot of the opportunities I could have had. I feel like now I'm 28, almost turning 29. It's only been the last few years where I'm a relatively independent fully functioning adult. Um, and I'm trying to make up for lost time in that way, but it also makes me conscious of, um, a lot of things that I feel fortunate for. You know, I'm very dedicated to my fitness because frequent exercise and physical therapy is what, uh, keeps my disorder in remission. That's what's worked. That's what works for me. I think, um, pain is a very individual thing. And, um, no one thing is a panacea. The same thing does not work for everyone. Um, so everyone kind of has to find their solution. And unfortunately, reflex sympathetic dystrophy doesn't have a lot of solutions. There are people that have morphine pumps in their spines for it. There are people that live their days in a wheelchair or hospital bed. And in that way, I'm really a success story because I found something that worked and I've just pushed it really hard. Um, so it, it makes me very um, health conscious, not just for myself, but for other freelancers as well in, in making up for lost time, because I've really only had the last almost three years to work as a professional artist. Um, you know, I'm really keeping in mind that there's a lot of people that don't have the reprieve from their disability that I had and how incredibly fortunate I am that I did. And in that way, it I really feel obligated to say yes to every opportunity that I can reasonably take on and, you know, live the, this new, previously unimaginable life to the fullest. Well, I know that you had said uh, you had mentioned Philadelphia and that you'll be you know, relocating to there. So um, is it is it a city that's, you know, helps with that condition because I know other things uh you know there's a friend of mine has like such severe asthma that she's she gets disabled from it um and I'm like you know why don't you move from the east coast to where you can breathe and you know life is here let's you know like so it's not so she can't just like as as much as Arizona would be better for her she can't leave um and I just can't imagine that it, with pain issues, being around snow and risking walking and slipping on ice or something. Actually, um, Philadelphia is one of the places that uh, helped, me, helped me with my disorder. Um, when I was 17, three years into my pain disorder, I went to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia for a three-week program um, that was specifically for what I had. And they taught me these physical therapy techniques, and they taught me 
that this was something that works for some of the people that have my disorder. Um, unfortunately, my life was full of a lot of tragedy at the time. My mom was dying of brain cancer. My grandfather died six weeks after her. There was just a lot going on, so I wasn't able to keep up with the techniques they taught me. But those same techniques are the ones that I really got serious about when I was 26 and got really disciplined about doing what they taught me there. So I owe a lot to Philadelphia in terms of my health. And um, if, you know, if and when I'm able to find uh, my next mural painting jobs in Philadelphia, they're going to be really good for my health, too, because mural painting has been a really active thing for me. You know, I'm I'm lucky to be healthy enough that I can, you know, contort myself and run all over a construction site. And um, it's it's been another form of keeping myself in shape without having to go to the gym. It sounds so Da Vinci, you know, like I, I just we had, when you had to if you have to lie on your back on a scaffold to paint a ceiling. Oh, flattered. <laughs> It sounds amazing. Um, I do know how to drive and operate a JLG scissor lift. I'm very proud of that. Oh, see, there you go. <laughs> not, not quite the scaffolding, but it's, you know, <laughs> beep, beep, beep. I like when it backs up or I can raise myself 15 feet in the air. <laughs> see, that would terrify people. That would terrify a lot of people to be, uh, you know, high up and just on something that looks like it would be wobbly, even though if it, even if it's not. Oh, it's wobbly. Like, win- <laughs> oh, like window washers. Like, how do they do it? Oh, that just, it looks absolutely terrifying. Um, but I, you know, I can think of it more in a, in a smaller, you know, setting with maybe some ladders, but uh, yeah, still dangerous. Um, I've done some big canvases before, but it was, um, you know, they fit in a room. It wasn't anything too, you know, like bigger than, than a room. Um so that was all. That, t- that only took, I think, a step ladder maybe to reach. But anything, anything bigger than a desk is like such a unique challenge. It's hard to describe to people who haven't made anything bigger than, say, 11 by 17, like what that's like and like the new skills you have to learn just to be able to cover this, you know, area in a certain amount of time. And <laughs> Well, what did you do? I was lucky. This was in high school and I was lucky that um, I had a really cool art teacher and we had um, an AV club because I was a nerd um, it, they, that we had. We were in charge of the projectors and they had um, back then they were overhead things where you printed out stuff on clear plastic and put them on this thing to project up onto a wall or a canvas or something. So that was actually, you know, what I did was whatever, you know, piece of art or picture was going to be done, we would, you know, use a projector and put that up on the wall so that we didn't have to, we weren't drafting on the the final, you know, canvas. Uh, I've done some projection. Um, There's a, what is it? It's like a 190 foot retaining wall in East Stroudsburg that I painted with five different local animals in the style of Viking and Celtic folk art. Um, so we used a projector hooked up to a computer for that. Uh, I have another panel that was done as part of a 75 foot mural wall, uh, featuring local businesses that had sponsored the wall. Uh, so I did the yard of ale panel. And for that, I actually used the more traditional, um, art projector where it's just like you have the six inch tall printout that then you slide under the projector and then you hook it up to an outlet and you just go. Um, but then, uh, a technique that I was taught, uh, while working at the water park. Um, I was working for Lone Willow, which is a mural company run by Jeff Kraft. That's K-R-A-F-T. Every Kalahari resort and water park in existence. There's currently three. There will be more soon. 
um, have murals by Lone Willow and Jeff Kraft. And he taught me that you could actually draft it straight onto the wall using charcoal. And um, surprise, surprise, a box cutter and a damp rag were like my best friends during the whole mural thing. That's like, that was something I was not expecting to learn is like box cutter and damp rag. Just always have them. There's going to be like purposes for them that you wouldn't even realize. But um, with drafting them onto the wall, um, the damp rag would just take anything from the Biden charcoal away that uh, wasn't necessary so that we didn't have to worry about like leaving some, you know, mark where there's going to be white or something. Um, so I've, I've used actually a lot of like different techniques at this point for putting a piece up on the wall. Do you have um, like special consideration for how on earth you approach perspective then with something so big? I mean, you have to, it just sounds like you'd be constantly running 30 feet away from your, your um, surface in order to see what's going on. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, there's, uh, there's some of that, but, um, I don't know how you would do that if you're up on a scissor lift, like you can't constantly be going up and down. Like it just sounds really, yeah, it has, <laughs> it has to be planned beforehand. It's like planning is really, really essential with the mural painting and turns out with the body painting, um, where there's going to be a point where like, you can do that for a while. You can, you know, go back and forth between getting up close and looking at it far away. But after a while, because of the size of the surface you're covering, it's just necessary that you got to have your face six inches from it. And um, at that point, everything that you did in the planning stages and being super practical about putting this all together is what's going to make or break your piece. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot of diverse and cool projects coming up for this year, like really interesting things. Um, you know, I when I saw your work at first, I was thinking it looked like album covers, and I had no idea that you had a music background anyway. So, oh, thank you. Um, that was that was what I thought of. I was like, oh, like even her animals, like they look like they should be on albums or something. Wow. <laughs> Hopefully, someone hears this and is like, yes, yes, I will hire. Yes, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, you know, you're on Twitter, obviously. So, what's your Twitter handle? Joy Tawny, just one word: J O Y T A N E Y. And are you doing any conventions? Because I know the Garden State Comic Fest tickets just went on sale yes. for people who are attending. I, I was invited to Garden State, so I should be there. Um, you know, I, I walk around at a lot of cons. Um, I'll be tabling at some other cons. Unfortunately, I don't uh, have my schedule super set up for that because, like, this move to Philadelphia is sort of taking up a lot of my brain space that we reserve for planning cons at the moment. But, there, I mean, there will be some where... I'll be announcing it. Uh, my main blog is uh, my Tumblr blog, which is kineticnovels.tumblr.com. That's K-I-N-E-T-I-C-N-O-V-E-L-S.tumblr.com. Uh, I also announce it on my Facebook artist page. Um, so unfortunately, like mentioning stuff more specific than, say, Garden State um, is going to have to wait. <laughs> Not a problem. It's still early in the year. So um, I'm always surprised when people start announcing their shows and it's like December and they're announcing them for the next year. I'm like, how do you know already? Those people are incredible. Like tabling is exhausting. And just the stamina that people who make a lot of their money from tabling have to have is just I respect that so much because it's like tabling wipes me the fuck out. It is exhausting. That's like an understatement of how many hours, especially some of these shows, they expect you to put in 10 hours 
um, a day, yeah. you know, or, or they'll add a day and think that, isn't it great? We're so successful. We're adding a day. And we're like, no, yeah. no, it's not great. It's like more, another day. I, you know, the, the, the vendors have to pay you and then be on their feet for six or eight more hours. Yeah. And that whole time you have to be like energetic and approachable and charming and sell your work. And like, just, yeah, it's really hard to be happy and pleasant that many hours. It is. <laughs> It is. So but thinking of happy, pleasant things, um, do you have any like encouraging words of wisdom for the listeners, anybody who might be struggling to get their art made? Yeah, you know, life is full of change. Never stop. Um, stuff isn't going to be the way it is now forever. And the best and the worst things that are going to happen to you are going to be what's unexpected. So just be ready to take those opportunities when you're in a good place and time to do it. That's fantastic. And it goes along really well with the quote that I found because I didn't have anything inspirational to say for myself. Um, but I, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, who's always very quotable, said, with the new day comes new strength and new thoughts. So I thought that was awesome and goes along very well with what you said. Into that. Yeah. You know, it's going to keep coming and it's, uh, yeah, unfortunately, unexpected shit happens, <laughs> but it could be great shit. That's right. That's right. So, all right, you guys have been listening to Joy Tawney, who was delightful to talk to, and I was so honored to get to meet her and, and get to know her, you know, uh, recently. So it's been it's been wonderful, and you should go find her stuff and check her work out. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Elizabeth Amber. Um, everything else is at AmberUnmasked.com, including information on the novel Cardiac Arrest and the Patreon, of course, Patreon.com slash AmberUnmasked. Thanks for listening.